I'm going to be doing some standalone messages and not necessarily something that I had prepared as a series for the next little while. And this too is a standalone message. It's based on James chapter 1. So if you would turn with me to James chapter 1. And um, we're going to be reading just two verses from verse 2 to verse 4. And uh, it's a passage that speaks about trials and how trials do come our way and how they impact our lives. None of us enjoy trials. Uh, None of us want trials in our lives. But James has a different view when it comes to to trials. And so we're going to be looking at these two verses. And um, please just stand Earlier we prayed for the Christians in Ukraine and in Russia. Uh, There are many Christians who are not only displaced and families have been torn apart. Women are alone because apparently every male under the age of 60, I think, is conscripted in Ukraine as a soldier. And so you can imagine young men, older men, all have to bear arms to defend their country. And it's just a, a very devastating situation. What a trial that is for them. And yours may not be as intense, but still you may be in a trial. And so I pray that this word will bring light and comfort to your soul as we read these verses. So consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, how can we thank you enough for your word? What a light it is to us and a lamp to our feet. How we are lost without this most reliable compass. It alone points to the true north, which is you. It alone can draw us closer to you. It alone can dispel the clouds from our minds. And so we ask that once again, you would speak to your people. Draw us closer to yourself. For your name's sake, strengthen every one of your beloved who is here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Testings, trials. Um, They're not a pleasant experience But as Christians, we cannot avoid them. It would be great if Christianity would guarantee a pain-free life. A life filled with happiness, prosperity, and safety. One that would be the envy of the most wealthy, the most popular person in the world. That would be nice. But the Christian life is anything but a life of ease and comfort. Jesus said this to his disciples. And they were shocked when he said this, and I'll explain why in a little while. In the world, you have tribulation. Tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. He didn't say, take courage, you will overcome the world. Take courage, I 
have overcome the world. And those are really telling words. Why? Because he is saying that as a second Adam, he is going to win where the first Adam failed. There is no evil influence that could have led our Savior into outright rebellion against his Father. There would be no power on earth that could cause him to fall and be tempted to disobey. I have overcome the world because the world is in the lap of the evil one. We know that. And so Jesus is saying, the world will not have victory over me. And all those in me, all those in Christ, gain from that victory. That victory becomes our victory. Just like his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His holiness becomes our holiness. And so that we can rejoice. Though for a moment we do go through tribulations, no, we know that those tribulations will not undo the believer, will not pull the believer from the grip of God. One of the illustrations I've shared with you on several occasions is the illustration of a, an eagle that has its nest perched on a very high cliff. And in that nest, there are eaglets, and they feel very comfortable and safe. When it rains, the mother eagle hovers over them and spreads her wings, and not one drop of rain comes through. When it's cold, the mother eagle again spreads its wings and covers the nest, and the eaglets feel very safe. And for, of course, the mother eaglet feeds her young and makes sure that they are well taken care of and that no predator comes even close to the nest. But there comes a moment when the mother eagle removes the bedding, the straw, the hay, all the comfortable bedding that the eaglets have come to enjoy in their young life. And the eaglets don't understand what's going on. And so they perch themselves around the nest, on the edge of the nest, while the mother eagle plucks away at the bedding and throws it out. And they're just perplexed by all of this. And then finally, the mother eagle, with her head, bumps against one eaglet, and the eaglet falls and plummets into nothingness. And this eaglet is asking itself, what is going on as she plummets? And then down swoops the eagle to pick up this little eaglet and brings it back up into the nest. And the eaglet then once again is reassured, mother eagle loves me. Mother eagle takes care of me. And we go through this kind of experience where we doubt God's care when we seem to be free-falling, and then we are reassured of his care and his love when he picks us up momentarily. We have this saying that we've heard on many occasions, God is good all the time, and all the time he is good. And unfortunately, many have interpreted that saying as to mean that when good things happen to us, That's God. When bad things happen to us in this life as a Christian, that's not God. But both are God. Nothing happens by chance in the life of a believer. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. When that eaglet is free-falling, when that eaglet sees the bedding removed from its nest, the mother knows exactly what she wants. 
She wants the eagle to learn how to spread its wings and fly. And it will do this repeatedly until that eaglet learns to spread its wings and fly. God has a specific purpose when trials come into our lives. No trial is a mistake. No trial is by chance. All trials are designed by God and woven into the very fabric of our lives by the sovereign hand of God. And so this is why God is not interested in our immediate good. God is ultimately interested in our ultimate good. That's what it is. Immediate good, that we are financially uh, stable, that we have our loved ones with us, that we have health, that we have um, uh, a future. These, these are all immediate good. Does God take care of that? Yes, of course, as Jesus says, look at the sparrows. If God can't, doesn't forget them, how can he forget you? We can bring these needs to him. But God at times removes the safety. He'll remove some financial uh, uh, cushion or whatever it may be that we have grown to be accustomed to. And he'll do it not because he wants to hurt us, but because he has in mind the ultimate good. And for this reason, James says to expect trials. In fact, he goes further. He says to welcome them into your life. This letter was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And interestingly, James does not identify himself as the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't make allusion to his blood relationship to Jesus, but rather calls himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in the first verse. A bondservant. He doesn't say, look, I'm Jesus' half-brother, therefore please pay attention to what I have to say because it's important. He says, no, I'm a doulos. A doulos is a slave. A slave had no title, no inheritance, no wife, no husband, no family, no right, nothing. He was the property of an owner. At the time of Rome, and these, when James was writing this, just in Italy itself, there were so many slaves that one out of every three was a slave. That's in Italy itself. In the Roman Empire, it ranged between one to seven to one to ten. Slaves were ubiquitous. Rome was built on the back of slaves. And it wasn't a race thing. There were white slaves, black slaves, brown slaves, slaves of all kinds. It was a class uh, statement. And so James takes this word that no one would have uh, embraced and no one would have identified themselves as a doulos and makes it his very own. He says, I'm a doulos. I belong to the Lord. I'm his slave. And whatever pleases him, I will do. So why does he start this way? Because he's going to introduce the subject of suffering. Why do we suffer? He is saying, I'm his doulos. Why is there pain in my life? I'm his doulos. Why is there this trial? I'm his doulos. It's not that God is there and me, I'm the center and the sun and God is just there to make sure that everything is hunky-dory in my life. That's not it. I'm his slave. And if he introduces pain 
into my life, he has every right to do so because he has redeemed me. He has made me his own. He loves me. And he paid the ultimate price for me. The thing that pleases the Heavenly Father is not to bring pain into our lives, not to bring trials, but because he wants us to partake of his holiness. And he knows that the pathway to this glorious goal of holiness is through suffering and hardship. Without suffering and hardship, the writer to the Hebrews says, we don't partake of his holiness. Now this was not a truth embraced by the Old Testament saints. It's there in the Old Testament in embryonic form, in seed form. Remember what Augustine said? The New Testament is in the old hidden. The old is in the new revealed, or better yet, expanded. Rarely do you, do you see or read of saints rejoicing while they suffered. You come across that a little bit in Psalm 119, and you come across this truth in the book of Habakkuk, when he says, though the stalls are not filled, I will continue to rejoice in the Lord my Savior. But generally speaking, you don't see the concept of rejoicing. They could not understand suffering and trials. They couldn't understand that as a portion of the life of a believer. For them, the blessings of the Lord makes rich, as it says in Proverbs 10.22, and he adds no sorrow to it. For this reason, Asaph, the servant of the Lord, the choir leader, was troubled when he says, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death. And their belly is fat. They are not in trouble like other people, nor are they tormented together with the rest of mankind. That's in Psalm 73 through to 5. He's saying, why are they pain-free? Why is there no suffering in the unrighteous, in the wicked? Why are the righteous suffering? Why are the righteous filled with pain and hardships? It shouldn't be. Because this was the understanding that the Old Testament believer, the Old Testament saints had, that suffering was only meant for the unrighteous, that the righteous was to live a life of blessings and God's favor was to be on them. Little wonder then that Job's friends concluded for Job to suffer this much. He must have sinned gravely. This was the general belief of the Old Testament saint. But then in comes James, and he writes that as a child of God, you are not only to expect trials, you are to welcome them. Welcome them. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. A Christian is not meant to live a life of ease, but one marked by trials, hardship, and suffering. And this was radical. I remember James wrote primarily to the Jews, Jewish Christians. In fact, you'll notice right in the prologue that he writes to the 12 tribes scattered. And so these were Jewish Christians, and James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so he writes to them, and he says something that was hard for them to embrace because the Jewish Christians were suffering. If our Lord was not spared pain and suffering, during his earthly life, should we expect any less? Hebrews chapter 
5 verse 8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. The Lord never knew what it meant to obey because he is Lord in heaven. He is the center of worship and the object of glory. No one is more elevated than him. And yet, in his abasement, in coming down to us, he had to learn obedience. And he did so through suffering. Jesus was the Father's beloved Son without sin and holy in every sense. There was not a blemish of any kind in our lovely Savior. And so he endured the most horrific treatment afforded to any human. Not only the suffering at the cross, but the suffering from his own countrymen. He came to his own and his own received them not. All they did was be hostile and opposed to his message. He suffered. Our Lord endured, should we not carry our cross. He carried the heavy cross to redeem us. Now we can carry our cross. Expect trials. That's what James says. Secondly, we are to rejoice in trials. Consider it all joy. In other words, consider it the climatic joy. That's what James is saying. Rejoice when sufferings come into your life. And notice that they are of various trials. In other words, there are various kinds of trials. They come in all sizes and shape. And in every one of these trials, we are called to rejoice. Joy. That's a wonderful word. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is supernatural. We read in Peter these words about joy. Though you've not seen him, Jesus Christ, you love him. And though you, did not, you do not see him rather now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Is there greater joy for the believer who could see Jesus or for the believer who cannot see Jesus? Have you ever asked us is that, that question? Many times I wondered, oh, how I wish I could have been born when Jesus was around. You know, I just would have seen him and it would have been much easier. But if you remember in the book of Luke, when Jesus had gathered with his disciples and he was ascending, it says they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's an interesting verse. They worshipped, which means they were proskuneo, bowed down with their faces to the ground, but some doubted. They didn't have the assurance that indeed this was their Messiah. Why? Because as Paul says, though we knew him in the flesh, we no longer know him in the flesh. Knowing him in the spirit is far greater than knowing him in the flesh. And the joy that accompanies those who know him in the spirit is far greater than the joy that disciples had. Because the disciples were always on a roller coaster ride with their emotions until the day that they received the Holy Spirit and finally understood that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory and that he dwells within us by his spirit. And then there was exceeding joy. The joy they had while he was with them was tempered. It was accompanied with self-interest and agendas and they had their own plans woven into that. But when Christ ascended into glory, all agendas fell down. All programs fell apart. It was Jesus and him crucified. And their joy was great. 
This joy is not sensory dependent. It has nothing to do with our circumstances. Yesterday, I had one of my favorite pastas. Pasta la carbonara. And uh, my wife doesn't particularly like when I cook it because of the, the guanciale, which is the cheek of the, of the pork. <laughs> Some people are saying, oh, that's disgusting. That's part of the, uh, the dish, and it makes a certain smell, you know, and so forth. But I love the dish, anyhow. So my son and I were eating this, and, uh, and I just had my moment. I didn't want to be disturbed. <laughs> I didn't want to be bothered. I said, I'm not here. <laughs> just let me enjoy my pasta la carbonara. I was happy. It was a very um, fleeting happiness. It was enjoy. We can't experience joy in the, the birth of a child or, you know, or the wedding of a child, a son or daughter. We can't experience joy, but they are not the joy that we speak of here. This is a joy that does not touch the senses in any way. When I enjoy my pasta la carbonara, it hit my, uh, my scent, my sense, my scent rather. It hit my taste buds. It, I, I, I liked what I saw with my eyes. And uh, I just enjoyed that, but that's happiness. But joy is not sensory dependent. It is completely of a, from a spring that is supernatural. As the psalmist said, in you are all our springs. And this joy comes from him, the Lord himself. Now, if you look at the godly saints in the Old Testament, you'll never see them rejoicing, as I said earlier. Job doesn't rejoice in his suffering. He laments and complains. And as someone said, if God didn't finally come into the picture, that book would have had no end between those three friends and him. And Joseph himself, though he waited for God to vindicate him, does not rejoice in suffering. Consider David as he's hunted by King Saul. He goes from cave to cave. And many of the Psalms were written during that period. But in every one of those psalms, he cries out to God. He asks God for intervention, for help. But he doesn't rejoice. You see, the concept of rejoicing in trials, the concept of rejoicing when there's pain in our lives was foreign to them. And these prayers are not wrong by any stretch of the imagination. They're wonderful prayers. I've told you about a sister I know in Christ who... Uh, now has gone to be with the Lord, and how she came to the Lord by reading those psalms after her two children and her husband were both killed, one year apart, by the way, and, and nothing brought her comfort. She had locked herself in her house, and only as she read the psalms, especially the psalms that speak of God intervening, God help me, was she delivered from her fear and came to know Jesus Christ. But then she knew joy. She discovered joy. I remember seeing her in church, this was in Italy, many years ago in 1982, and she was dressed in black because her husband had died, her wife had died, and there she was singing with her face glowing. How could you sing when everything was, has been taken away from you? Because there was a joy that was supernatural. This is the joy that the Old Testament saints could not fully grasp, but that the New Testament saint, James says, can grasp. And imagine now for a moment, James writing to these suffering Christians all across the Roman Empire. And many of them experienced what the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 10. 
This is what happened to Christians, especially Jewish Christians, because the letter to the Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. Hebrews 10.32, it says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict. Notice, after coming to saving grace, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly, and he breaks it down, partly by being made a public spectacle through insults and distress. So you were ridiculed, you were made fun of. Partly by becoming companions with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. So that some were arrested and incarcerated for their faith. And in those days, if you went to visit an incarcerated Christian, you identified with them. It was dangerous. For this reason, no one wanted to visit Paul because then they would suffer persecution. And so this was a dangerous thing to do. But you identified with them by becoming companions with those who were so treated for you showed sympathy, sympathy to the prisoners. And you, then you accepted joyfully, notice, joyfully, what? The seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Isn't that something? These joyful Jewish Christians lost everything, lost their belongings, their property, their reputation, their family, their friends, and they did so joyfully. That's what James is alluding to. Why would, what would make these believers rejoice? Why would they do this? Look at Paul and Silas as they are in Philippi, preaching the gospel. They get flogged and then thrown into prison and shackled. And they're in prison with their backs lacerated. They pray to God and then they sing. For it says, now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. This is so radical. This is counter-normative. What is normal is to complain, it's to whine, it's to say, what is going on? It's to be like that eaglet falling down and wondering what in the world is going on. But to sing, it speaks of trust. Joy of this kind is unexplainable. It makes no sense. I've met Christians who have suffered greatly for their faith and have suffered in their life. And the ones that sing in their suffering and rejoice in spite of the trial, they're not saying, oh, I love this trial. They're saying, I love my God and I trust in him. He is sovereign and he is providentially taking care of me through all of this. He's the one who wields the chisel he is not going to let me fall apart. He's the one who's removing that which needs to be removed from my life, and he's the one who's working in me to do his perfect will. Then we are to grow in trials, James says, for knowing, look at verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James, again, writes of something that is totally foreign to the Old Testament saint. You do not see saints of old pondering over the benefits that we can draw from trials. You never see that. In the Old Testament, they're waiting for God to come through, 
to bring them back to the land, to vindicate them, to punish the evildoers. Only Joseph, we see, for example, him saying to his brothers, you meant it for evil, all that I went, to, I went through, but God meant it for good. So he draws a conclusion from all that he went through that it was a benefit for the 70 sons of Jacob to be delivered from Canaan and brought into Goshen, Egypt, for a while so that later they can go and reconquer Canaan. He, d- he drew that conclusion, but generally speaking, you don't see that kind of conclusions being drawn. But James says, knowing, you know something. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So not only are we rejoicing, but we're also having this knowledge, this assurance that re- causes us to grow in Christ-likeness. As I said earlier, nothing is wasted in the life of a believer. Absolutely nothing. Nothing happens by chance. Here's a verse that we know all too well. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all, circle it, underline it, highlight it, causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. How true this is. What a powerful verse, unique, reassuring for every child of God. And if this verse does not bring reassurance to you, Pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see this truth, especially if you're going through a difficult time. God weaves every strand into the tapestry of your life. He has a plan. He has a purpose for each one of his children. Now, when I say this, and I have heard this said many times, that God has a plan for us, and you may have heard it many times, I've met Christians who for years are still wondering what God's plan is for them. What what is God's plan? What does he want me to do? How should I leave my mark in this world? And there's some Christians that feel they're insignificant, they're meaningless, they're nobodies because they're not leaving some kind of an important mark in this world. But verse 28 is followed by verse 29. God's plan is not a mystery. It's not something that we need to figure out. What's the plan, Lord? What's the plan? You know, I've had many people come to me and share what they believed was God's plan for their lives. And they would quote this verse. And I would say, God's plan is in verse 29. Just read it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Conformity to Christ. That's the plan. That's the glorious plan. It's not something special that is catered to me. God uses us differently, of course, and God directs our steps, all his children, in in the manner that he chooses, but it's not something elusive. It's something clearly delineated. The agenda is there. It's told to all of us. He wants us like his son. And so as we know this, while we're going through the trial, we draw comfort, right? If I know that I'm going through some kind of fire of affliction, and I understand, Lord, you're making me more like your son through all of this. I'm suffering right now. I can't take it. I am having a hard time. But I know 
that you are making me more like your son. I know that you are removing the dross as I go through this fire of affliction because my faith is more precious than the gold that perishes. And you want to see the face of your son shining in the faith that is in me. And you want it to be clearly represented, clearly visible. You want to see that Christ-likeness in me. That's what he wants so that Jesus could be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What a wonderful plan. And he will not fail in achieving his goal. He won't. So it's not my plan it's here on earth or my vision or my desires, but it's his plan that overrides all other plans. It's his will and purpose that stands alone. And so I could draw comfort from that, knowing, knowing that the testing of my faith produces endurance. This is why we can also rejoice, because that knowledge causes us to rejoice. How many times as I've gone through trials and difficulties, I've had to stop and consider this truth, that God is sovereign, that he has brought me through this furnace. And as I'm going through that furnace, I'm realizing that he is reproducing Christ-likeness. He is removing dross, my self-centeredness, my selfishness, my pride. Whatever is not Christ-like is being removed from me. And so that the Christ-like character is being reproduced in me. So as I take comfort in that knowledge, I'm able then to sing. Because how do you sing if it's not based on knowledge, right? That's what James is saying. We can rejoice because we know. Joseph could not rejoice because he could not know. He only knew at the end something, and as he considers it, he goes, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And at that point, he could have rejoiced because God's people were delivered from starvation and brought into Goshen. But we are now rejoicing as we go through the trial, as we suffer, as we go through pains, we can rejoice because God is at work in our lives. And that's what, what endurance is all about. Endurance is the perseverance of the saints is a wonderful doctrine, the fifth doctrine of grace, which basically states that those who are saved are going to persevere to the very end. They will not be plucked out of the Father's hand, out of the Lord's hand. As we sang earlier, they're his forever. And he who started this good work is going to bring it to completion. He will not fail. And so we find comfort in that and we rejoice because he is reproducing Christ-likeness, which means we're growing in endurance. So we are to welcome trials. We are to rejoice in trials. We are growing in trials. And lastly, we are to stand complete through trials. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect. Complete. Lacking in nothing. That's God's will. <laughs> That's what God's will is for us. Show me a saint that has endured, whose faith has gone through fire, has faced suffering with a cheerful disposition, 
and I will show you a mature and complete believer. Mature and complete believer. And we thank God for the ones that God has graced us with here at LCF. In my lifetime, I've met Christians who have suffered in their life, and there is a gravitas, a Christian dignity, a Christ-like dignity that accompanies their walk. They are not easily flustered, nor do they lose sight of the glorious goal for which they've been saved. Their life is one of consistent, godly walk, even in the storm. I'm not sure if you've ever been to a greenhouse. I remember the first time I went to a greenhouse was in Vancouver, or outside of Vancouver. I've been to one several times here in Quebec. And if you visit greenhouses, you notice that all the plants are very similar and, and the fruit beautiful, and they're all similar. I've been to one where tomatoes, there was not one tomato that was bigger than another. I don't know how they do that, but they're all alike. They're all this glistening red, and they are uh, just a sight to behold. You walk into the greenhouse, you see all these red, these plants charged with tomatoes. And as, as far as the eye can see, and it's just a beautiful sight to behold. In a greenhouse, uh, plants receive the same amount of water, the same amount of daylight, the temperature is regulated, the conditions are perfect, and tomatoes all come out the same. Tomatoes you buy at the grocery store are typically those of a greenhouse. They're blemish-free, they look perfect, no damage whatsoever, but there's something lacking. The taste. <laughs> the taste is not there. There's something wrong with those tomatoes. You eat, you eat, you try, you add salt, olive oil, whatever you want, it just doesn't taste the same. Now, you, get, you go for a garden tomato. A garden tomato is completely different. Now, the garden tomato plant is exposed to insects. I know because <laughs> sometimes I have to spray these poor plants and I don't like to spray anything on them. They're exposed to too much heat and then too much rain and then too much wind and hail and everything else you can think of. And you will find on that plant fewer tomatoes than those of a garden tomato plant. But you take one bite of those tomatoes. You don't need olive oil. And you don't need salt. They explode with flavor. God has not called us to be greenhouse Christians. He never has. He doesn't want us in perfect conditions, safe, undisturbed. He won't do that with any of us or his children. He will not spare us suffering and hardship. He won't. There's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't go through hardship. You say, but right now, I, don't, I haven't gone through hardships, and, and maybe you haven't. But the time will come when you will go through them. Remember the mother eagle. <laughs> mother eagle knows when to disturb the nest. As believers, we are exposed to various kinds of trials, and we get beaten in so many ways and stretched beyond our limits. And sometimes we feel like we're going to crack. We're going to break under the weight of the trial. But God, who monitors each child with his loving eye, will never allow the fire that we go through to destroy us, but only to remove the dross. He who started this perfect work will finish it. So I want to end with this verse from the letter to Jude, the letter of Jude, rather. 
and it's a verse, in fact, the two verses that I've often quoted, but I want us all to read them and to find great joy and comfort in this. Jude 24, 25. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with a great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a verse. Or what verses. But notice that he protects us. What does he protect? He doesn't protect us from immediate problems. Those that can accompany and hit us unexpectedly in life. Right? Such as death or disease. But he protects our faith. That's what Jesus said to Peter. I've prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. He started this good work. He's going to bring it to, to, bring it to completion. He protects us so that we do not end up lost. He protects his own so they are not removed from his hand. They're not plucked. So no power on earth can overcome that which he has purposed to accomplish in our lives. He protects us. And he protects us from stumbling into unbelief, from stumbling out of his presence so that he can make a stand in the presence of his glory. Think about this for a moment. Angels are unable to stand without covering their feet and covering their eyes. We are going to stand blameless. We are going to stand and behold the Savior's face. What a salvation. And he, to accomplish it, will do everything possible. He will bring us through any kind of trial necessary. While monitoring the trial, he will never lose sight of us because his objective is so we are reproduced in the likeness of his son, conformed to Jesus Christ, so that we can stand before him rejoicing. Not quivering in fear, but rejoicing. Yes, there's reverence. Yes, there's going to be awe, but there's going to be joy. Beloved, unspeakable, indefinable, glorious joy in the presence of this holy God. He's the one who's going to do it. For this, we're going to re rejoice. I'm amazed with it. And we're going to stand blameless. That's how perfect the work of salvation is. It's unlike anything else. Nothing can compare. So when we go through trials and difficulty, and when we're tempted to bemoan the fact that we're suffering or going through a hard time, Let's remember the words of James. Let's remember that we can welcome them, these trials. We can rejoice. We can acknowledge what God is doing as we're growing through the trials, and especially that he's going to make us complete and perfect to stand blameless in his sight one day. What an amazing God we serve. Let's praise him and thank him together. Heavenly Father, How can we thank you enough for your ways, 
your wisdom, your sovereign plan. How can we express our thanks? Such truths are far too high for us to fully grasp, but we get glimpses of them, and those glimpses that we are able to see give us comfort, give us strength to go on. Lord, we thank you for the joy that is ours in the trials that we face. I pray, O Lord, that we would not be found lamenting and whining as so often is the case, but that we would be a people that would, like the Jewish Christians who joyfully accepted the seizure of their properties, that we would be such a people rejoicing in you. There are times, Lord, when the trial is, is so hard and it's unbearable. Lord, you never make us go through something for which you do not provide all the grace we need. If you did not spare your beloved son, how will you not with him give us all that which we need? And we need grace, O oh Lord, so that we can rejoice, so that we can stop to consider what you are doing in our lives, and so that we can thank you as we grow in Christ-likeness. For those who still don't know you, draw them to yourself. May they come to know the wonderful Savior, the one who died for their sin, so they would be justified by faith even today. May they open their hearts to the Savior, for only you could do this, Lord. May regeneration be their portion today. And this we ask in the precious name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.